Well, we're continuing in our series on the topic of community. Uh, the series title is called Crafted by God, and the subtitle is Finding Our Community in Christ. And the title of today's sermon is actually a bit of a curveball. It's titled Solitude in Community. Solitude in Community. Now, you might think it's odd to talk about solitude in a series on community, but as I've been reading and preparing for this series, I've, I've come to realize that um, Practicing healthy solitude is essential to experiencing healthy community. Okay, would you just think about that? Practicing healthy solitude as individuals, right, uh, is essential to experiencing healthy community as a church. Um, I've been quoting uh, this this. German theologian named Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, throughout the series because uh, he, he wrote a book called Life Together. And it's one of the classics on Christian thought regarding community life. And uh, he had a chapter, an entire chapter committed to solitude, committed to solitude. And um, I want to read his introduction because as I was reading it, I, I couldn't paraphrase it. Um, it was so powerful and impactful and on point for me that I was like, I just have to, to share it with you guys. And so it's a, it's a long paragraph, uh, but I really believe uh, Bonhoeffer does an amazing job describing the dynamic between community and solitude. And this is what he writes. Many people seek fellowship because they're afraid to be alone, because they cannot stand loneliness. They are driven to seek the company of other people. There are Christians too, who cannot endure being alone, who have had some bad experiences with themselves, who hope they will gain some help in association with others, they are generally disappointed. Then they blame the fellowship for what is really their own fault. The Christian community is not a spiritual sanatorium, and that's uh, uh, an old word for a convalescent home. Okay, imagine that. Do you imagine the church to be this kind of spiritual convalescent home where you just wheelchair yourself in and we're going to take care of everything for you? Bonhoeffer says, no, that is not the church. The person who comes into a fellowship because he's running away from himself is misusing it for the sake of diversion, no matter how spiritual this diversion may appear. He is really not seeking community at all, but only a distraction that will allow him to forget his loneliness for a brief time. Brothers and sisters, have you met people like this who come to church to escape their own loneliness, who look for community because they're so uncomfortable with themselves? Or perhaps it's actually you. And you're sitting here, and as you were reading that and listening to that quote, you were like, oh my gosh, I feel like this is describing me all too well. I'm not comfortable with myself. I'm expecting others to heal me, to perfect me. I'm really hoping and praying that, that this church makes me a better person, that this church improves my life, that this church makes me a happier, more well-rounded person. I once met a brother who would attend three different church services on Sunday because he didn't want to be alone. Our church service was at 11 o'clock, and so every Sunday morning he would go at 8 a.m., to a nearby Calvary Chapel. And if you spend any time in Southern California, there's a Calvary Chapel in every city, right? Every city in Southern California, pretty amazing church planning movement. 8 a.m., he would go to a nearby Calvary Chapel, do worship there, donuts and coffee, hang out. 11 a.m., he would join us for our worship, 
donuts and coffee. And we were a Korean church, so maybe a little bit of like kimchi stew or whatever it might be. Hang out, eat lunch. And then he would kind of loiter as long as he possibly could. And 5 p.m. would roll around and he would go to an evening service at a larger Calvary chapel in our city. This brother had gone through a bad divorce and he was going through a deep season of loneliness. My heart went out to him. And so, yes, I knew he needed community. But he needed more than a church that would operate all day on Sunday so he would never feel alone, right? He needed more than a church that offered Bible studies and prayer meetings and small groups every day so he would never have to go home to an empty apartment by himself. What this brother needed was to to get healthy and to stop running from himself, to stop running from his pain and stop projecting onto a community um, all of his personal needs and his wants. Bonhoeffer continues and he writes this paradoxical statement that I wanna unpack today. He says this, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. But, there's a re- but the reverse is also true. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Do you see that? If you can't be alone, you should beware of community. And if you have no community, you should beware of being alone. And church, that's the hook for today's message. Every person here should heed one of these two warnings. There are some of us here today that cannot be alone. We can't be alone with God because it's too terrifying or it's too boring or it's too empty and dead or dry and dull. We can't be alone with ourselves because it drives us crazy. And there's this phrase and it's an oxymoron, but it all makes sense. There's deafening silence, right? A silence that is so loud, so uncomfortable that you cannot handle it anymore. You have to turn something on. Whether it's uh, your radio, whether it's your TV, you just cannot be alone by yourself. For some of you, the only time you experience the Christian life is when you're around other Christians doing churchy things. Is that true of you? Okay. How do you experience following Jesus the power, the joy, the dynamic of being a Christian apart from spending time with other Christians? If you don't know how to answer that question, this might be you, that person who only experiences community or Christianity within the context of community. And I want to tell you, friends, the Christian life The spiritual life that Jesus offers us, it cannot be lived vicariously through others. It cannot be. Jesus has called you to follow him, okay? He's called you to personally trust in him and follow him. And when we die and we go before the throne of God and we stand before Jesus's judgment, we will give an account of our lives. We can't say my spouse went to church every week, even though I always skipped. We can't say my parents went to morning prayer every Sunday or my kids went to mission trips. We have to give an account of our lives before Jesus, the judge. And so the Christian life is a personal one. You cannot live it vicariously through others. You cannot outsource your faith to another person. You can't say, man, my pastor was really spiritual. Hopefully some of that blessing just falls upon me. 
On the other hand, there are some of us here today who do well alone. We're independent, right? We're high-functioning, we're, we're self-confident, whatever it might be. But there's some of you here today, you're not committed to community. You gather here at the church because you know that's what the Christian is supposed to do. It's a duty, it's an obligation, it's part of being a Christian, but you're not really invested in this community. You don't care deeply about the brothers and sisters here. And if that's you, you must beware as well. Because when Jesus calls us to himself, it's not just this Jesus, you and me relationship. What does he do? He calls us into a body. He calls us into a community, into the church, to be united with other members here. The Apostle John, he reminds us in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. And he's using this term, hate, not in this like, oh, you're my, like, I, like you're, you're evil, you're my villain, right? You are repugnant. No, it's not. It's, it's this concept of disdain, carelessness, indifference, right? Refusing to help, refusing to support, refusing to pray for, refusing to care for. That's equivalent to this kind of hatred within the church, and if that's you, if you say, I don't really care about the people around here. I don't really need the people here. I just come because I need to go to church on Sunday. Well, John would say, you don't really love God. If you don't love God's people, you don't really love God. The Christian faith is a corporate faith and God has designed us for community. Church, in which direction do you lean? Which is more you? That person who desperately needs others and needs gatherings and needs fellowship and needs prayer meetings and small groups and retreats and mission trips so that you can live out your Christian life? Or are you that lone ranger Christian who doesn't really care deeply, significantly about community? And I think we will tend towards one. As we unpack this idea of solitude and community, we're gonna look at three things today. First, our need for solitude, right? Why do we need it? Why is it important? Second, we're gonna look at the practice of solitude. What does it look like? And then thirdly, we're gonna see the benefits of solitude, okay? The mutual communal benefit and blessing of solitude. So let's start with our need for solitude. Now for me, the word solitude, it has some negative connotations, doesn't it? You're not, you don't think of solitude as like a good thing, right? I mean, we know like worship, prayer, you know, like service, those are all like positive words. But the moment someone says solitude, you're like, is that like time out, right? Is that punishment, right? Because it always associates uh, these, these ideas and images of like solitary confinement in prison. And so if you've ever watched any like movies like Shawshank Redemption or Prison Break, which is a TV series, which is fantastic actually, um, you know that, that these inmates, if they do something wrong, if they get in a fight or they get caught with contraband, the warden will send them down to solitary confinement, which is this deep, dark cell without any human reaction for days or weeks or maybe even months on end. And they come out emaciated, depressed, pale with beards, even though I could never grow a beard, but I would get a little bit of like Fu Manchu going. And, and, and it's this like dark, depressing, it's like the worst thing that could possibly happen to you as a prison inmate. You get thrown into solitary confinement. However, we in the church, we need to shed this notion 
that solitude is a bad thing. We need to shed this notion that solitude is a punishment. In scripture, solitude and stillness are considered spiritual disciplines, okay? Whereas loneliness and isolation, they are seen as products of sin, okay? Now here's the problem. We think that they're similar. We think of like solitude and loneliness, right? Isolation, desolation, you're like, oh my gosh, those are all like in the same category. But in the Bible, we see the two different categories. Solitude and stillness is a spiritual discipline. Loneliness and isolation is a result of sin. Amen, make sense? Okay, you don't have to say amen, you're speaking, okay, nod your head, and we're good. Uh, let's look at a couple scripture verses where we see uh, saints um, just championing uh, this discipline of solitude. In Psalm 62, King David reminds himself, he's, he's praying to himself and preaching to himself to seek solitude in the presence of God. And verses five and six read this. For God alone, he's talking to himself. For God alone, O my soul, wait. Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Okay. What is David's posture before God here in this psalm? How does David come to remember that God is his, is his rock and his salvation, that God is his fortress? How can David come to pen these amazing words that I will not be shaken? Well, he receives this revelation. He receives this word from God in solitude, in a posture of solitude and silence before him. As he's waiting on the Lord, God reminds him of who he is and what he's able to accomplish for the sake of his people. This is how the word of God comes to him and gives him hope, David, in solitude and silence. In Mark 6, uh, Mark 6 is a fascinating passage because Jesus, in the beginning of it, he sends out his disciples two by two, right? Two by two, kind of like the, the animals in Noah, right? And he sends them out and he says, go and proclaim the good news. Go and proclaim that the kingdom is, is at hand and people need to repent, right? And he also sends them out to go and do miracles. And so the disciples are paired up, right? And they're doing ministry and they're healing the sick. They're even casting out demons. And they had an amazing time, amazing time as missionaries sent out by their Lord Jesus. And at the end of Mark 6, they come back. They come back. It's almost like missions report time, right? And they're all excited and they're, 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 they're celebrating the fact that God would use them and, 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 and they're witnesses to the power of God. And then Jesus does something very important. The first thing he says to them, the first thing he does for them is he prescribes for them like a doctor. He prescribes for them solitude as a way of rest and strengthening. So in Mark 6, this is what we have in verse 31. And he, Jesus, said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, right, a lonely place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, but they had no leisure even to eat. And then they went away in the, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. You see that? Jesus knew that after so much ministry and busyness, that his disciples needed solitude. They didn't need a vacation to recharge, even though if you would ask them, hey, do you want to go hang out by the beach in the Mediterranean? They'd probably say yes, right? That sounds awesome. And I think we would choose that as well. But Jesus knew they didn't need a vacation. They needed solitude. Solitude to find true rest. 
and renewal. Jesus prescribed for them something greater, something better, something richer than just a vacation. He commanded them to go into solitude for rest. Now, church, if King David and if Jesus' disciples needed to practice solitude in their lives, how much more do you and I need it? Okay. How much more do we need it? After a long and grinding and stressful week of work, what do you need? Right? Do you need a cold beer and just Friday night television? Or do you need solitude? After a hectic and difficult week of maybe caring for your children at home, what do you truly need? Right? Some cupcakes and some milk tea and boba? Or do you need solitude? After a busy weekend of ministry and service, college students, you guys are just finishing finals, right? In our own prescription of of care and rest and renewal, we give ourselves everything that this world takes. Think about that. How do we prescribe rest and renewal for ourselves? It is no different than what non-Christians, what this world prescribes. Oh, you need a vacation. You need to go shopping. You need to go have a great meal. You need to go eat something, drink something, smoke something, gamble something, watch something, listen to something, go somewhere. But Jesus, the great spiritual physician says, you don't need those things for rest and renewal. He's not condemning them. He's just saying there's something greater and better and deeper. And it's solitude. Here's the question. Do you have it? Have you tasted it? Have you experienced it? Do you practice stillness and quietness and alone time with God regularly in your life? Or for you, you can't remember the last time you just sat quietly and spent time with the Lord. The sad thing is we know we should, but most of us do not. Most of us live lives that are polluted with busyness and noise. In fact, many of us can't stand being alone and we can't stand the silence. Uh, I was reading an article that actually our, our sister Hannah recommended to me. Uh, it was written on the subject of solitude by a professor from Biola University. And in this article, he was studying solitude and human behavior. And so he, he came across this like, research project uh, from this social psychologist at the University of Virginia. And here in this project, they invited participants to engage in what were called thinking periods. And all this was was 15 minutes in a pretty bare and empty room, and all they want you to do is think. Be quiet, be alone with your thoughts, no pen, no paper, and here's the worst thing, no smartphone, right? No cell phone, no Wi-Fi. You know what's really funny? Like this church, um, once a year we change Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi passwords, and once a year our church members lose their minds. They're like, no Wi-Fi, what's the Wi-Fi password? And like, they go to every staff member and we're like, oh, like, like, yeah. It's just hilarious. Anyway, so in this series, in this series, in this study, it was just 15 minutes. Be alone with your thoughts. And then at the end, they asked, how'd you like it? And most people hated it. Most people hated it. They said that over half the participants said that being alone with only their thoughts was not pleasurable. And then they upped the ante, right? Like good social scientists. And they said, you know what? If you guys want, you can administer to yourself a small, a mild electric shock just to pass the time. 
and distract yourself. So it wasn't that the, the, the doctors were gonna shock them. It was like, you can just press a button, right? It seems insane, right? Who would wanna do that? But guess what happened, right? People got so tired and sick and bored of the solitude, they just started shocking themselves. 67% of the men, go men, right? They chose electric shock over solitude. They couldn't sit there for 15 minutes alone with their thoughts. This, was a, this wasn't a Christian exercise of prayer and scripture reading. It was just be still and think. And they're like, no. <laughs> this is more interesting and distracting and fun. And women, y'all fared a lot better. Y'all were 25%, only 25. But think about one of four women are still like, right? <laughs> Church, that's the state of our culture today. Many would rather shock themselves than sit alone with their thoughts. We have a problem, don't we? There's something deeply restless within us. Church, how do you fare with silence and solitude? You see, I'm not asking if you spend time alone. We all have moments alone, right? At home, in our cars as we drive to work or school, right? We all experience moments alone throughout the day, but when you are alone, is that time overrun with noise? Is it filled with busyness? Is it filled with distractions? Is the TV always on in the background? You know, uh, for a couple of years, uh, I lived in a studio and I actually did this. I would come home because I didn't have any roommates because all my roommates kept getting married, right? I was in seminary and uh, we would live together and then these pastors just kept getting married. And so, oh, I'm tired of finding random roommates. I'm just gonna live in a studio. And I'll come home and I'm so lonely, I'll just turn on the TV and have it. I'm not watching it. It's just, it feels like the room is fuller. Right, guys? I don't know if any of y'all do this. And if you did, you're not going to like smile because it's a little shameful, right? <laughs> we do that. Or are you always listening to the radio or a podcast? Are you constantly on your phone scrolling through Facebook, Pinterest, or Instagram? Okay. Uh, we are addicted to noise and busyness, right? And we do so much to run away from silence and quietness. Now, I'm not saying that these are inherently bad things, but we have to consider their effect on our lives. Life constantly plugged in and wired to noise is not how God created us to live, okay? That is not how God created you and I to live, to be always wired, to always be plugged in, to always be busy, to always be stimulated, right? He actually created us both for community, for productivity, for work, but also for silence and for solitude. And I think for too many of us in this generation, that's a foreign experience. That's a foreign discipline. And we're killing ourselves because of it. Donald Whitney, a well-known Christian author, he writes, many of us need to realize the addiction we have to noise. And because we are the most urban, noise-polluted generation ever, we have an unprecedented need, need to learn the disciplines of silence and solitude, okay? We need it more than ever, and we get it less than anyone ever did, okay? That's the sad thing, okay? Previous generations, they were more able to, to go on a walk and be quiet by themselves, to rest at home and just read a book. Imagine that. No background music. I know a lot of Christians who can't do quiet times without Christian music playing in the background, okay? Um, I know that right now, if we 
had prayer, congregational prayer, you guys would be more comfortable if someone came up and played like, ah, some pets and send the vibe, right? But if we were just quiet and prayed for five minutes, some of you guys would just start losing your minds, <laughs> right? We need, we need it more than anyone ever did, and we get it less than any generation ever did. I don't have time to unpack each idea, but I want to tell you that all throughout Scripture, the saints have practiced solitude for the sake of spiritual and physical rest, just like um, Jesus wanted for his disciples. The saints practiced solitude to experience intimacy with God, just like King David did. For clarity regarding the will of God, Moses went into the wilderness to figure out what God wanted him to do with his people. He would go up to the mountain and say, God, I need to meet you because we got to figure out what to do with these wandering, uh, belly-aching Israelites. The saints would go and experience solitude for strength to obey the will of God in moments of crisis when they were in crossroads, at a crossroads, for themselves or their families or their churches, the saints would go into solitude to meet the Lord. If any of those things seem valuable to you, then I want to encourage you to consider practicing solitude. We need it. So how do we do it? How do we practice solitude? This is the second point of the message today. Earlier, I contrasted solitude with loneliness, okay? They're not the same thing, but sometimes they feel the same but I want to unpack that a little here. You see, the difference between loneliness and solitude is that loneliness is experienced, okay? Loneliness is felt, but solitude is practiced, okay? Solitude is intentional. Loneliness is a feeling that comes to you and it leaves you feeling empty and, and in despair. So perhaps you are a stay-at-home parent and there's this phrase that, that, that uh, families use, it's called stir crazy, right? You're like, oh my gosh, all I've been doing is doing baby talk, right? And I'm tired of like these children YouTube videos and you feel restless and isolated and you're feeling lonely. You need adult human interaction, whether it's your spouse or your friends or something, other family members. Or perhaps you're a young adult with no plans on a Saturday night, right? That's pretty scary for single adults. I have no plans on Saturday nights, five minutes on social media can easily make you feel lonely and empty. Is it not? Was that how you felt this weekend? Maybe Friday night didn't go as planned. Maybe Saturday was just a little too open for your comfort level. And you had moments of loneliness, restlessness, and despair. However, solitude is a spiritual discipline. And whereas loneliness leaves you feeling empty, solitude leaves you feeling full. Solitude strengthens you. And that's the promise. And that's why this is a spiritual discipline that God offers us. And I want us to learn how to practice solitude from the example of Christ. So how do we do it? How do we practice it? Number one, solitude must be intentional. All right? And these next three points are all from Jesus and his experience. Mark 1.32. This is what... Uh, Mark writes, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place 
and there he prayed. Okay. Think about that picture. Jesus Christ here in Mark chapter one, he just, I mean, he just starts his public ministry, hits the ground running, and he is instantly famous, like overnight, and people are losing their minds. Mark tells us the whole city was gathered at the door of Jesus and his disciples, and they're bringing them their sick. They're bringing them people who are demon-possessed, and and, and Jesus is just, just healing everyone and doing miraculous, miraculous work. And then what does he do? Early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a lonely place to pray. You see, solitude must be intentional, okay? The other gospels, they talk about this story and when Jesus disappears, you know what happens? The people are looking for him because the next day, more sick people come. More demon-possessed people are there. More people, because it's just the news is spreading like wildfire and people are all flooding in and they're all looking for Jesus. But rather than Jesus just meeting everybody's felt needs and being a slave and a prisoner of the moment, what does Jesus do? He intentionally slips away while it's still dark into solitude for rest and renewal. And church, there are times when we feel like the whole city is at our door. Maybe you are an executive at your work or the owner of your business and you just feel the weight, the burden, the workload is, is, it, it, it is heavy and it is crushing and you feel like your business needs you, your, 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 your clients need you. And you're like, I can never get away to rest. I don't have a moment to spare. You feel like this, the whole city's banging at your door. Jesus says, that's when you need to take a pause and get away. Maybe your family, your kids, your children, they are like, mommy, daddy, I need this. We're sick, we're feverish, the kids are fighting, school's about to start, or summer's coming and you have no plans for your kids and you're just stressed out, out your ears. And you're like, my family needs me, my kids needs me, the whole city is gathered at my door. Jesus says, early in the morning, while the kids are still asleep, while it's still dark, go to a desolate place and pray. Friends, um, solitude will never be convenient. Whether you're a student, a single, a professional, a family, a father, mother, a spouse, whatever it might be, it will never be easy. It will never be convenient. It must always be intentional. That's the first thing we learn about how to practice solitude. Second, Jesus teaches us that solitude includes and requires meditation. Okay, so okay, when you're in solitude, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to meditate. Matthew chapter four, this is the great story of Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. This is what he writes. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Church, have you ever wondered, Jesus, what were you doing for those 40 days while you were fasting in the wilderness? We know he didn't eat anything, right? Jesus, what did you do? Here's the answer. He was praying. He was in communion with God, and he was meditating on the word of God. 
And we know this because the moment Satan comes and he, and he tempts him, he says, turn, you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. What does Jesus do? He responds not with his own words, not with his own curse, but he responds with the word of God. This comes directly from Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is giving us a blueprint for what we ought to do when we are in solitude. We don't just kind of sit there and look at the ceiling, twiddle our thumbs, wait for God to show up like a flash of light. No. In these moments of meditation, or in these moments of solitude, we should begin with the word of God. We should read it, reflect upon it, hide it in our hearts, ingest it, and be able to use it, to wield it when Satan, when tempters come, right? When we're truly meditating upon the word and spending time with God, we'll be able to respond to life's challenges, our circumstances with God's word and with God's wisdom. How often do you meditate upon the word? Here's a problem for you and I. At best, we'll read it and then we'll just pray it. Is that your quiet time? You'll read a couple verses and then you'll start praying. And most often your prayer life doesn't reflect the content of scripture. You just start praying into like your to-do list. You're like, oh, you know, my wife's a little sick or I got finals coming up or please bless my friend. They're looking for a job. And you just go into this kind of errand list of prayer. Okay. What meditation does is it unites head and heart. It unites Word, the word of God, right? And the words that flow from your mouth. Because as you meditate and rest and pause and think upon the word of God, you're allowing that to just marinate and digest into your soul. And this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus did in the wilderness, meditating upon the word of God. And he was able to overcome all of Satan's temptations. The third thing we want to see in solitude, first is it's intentional. Second, requires meditation. Third, prayer. Solitude requires prayer. It includes prayer. Matthew 26, 36. Okay. This is at the end of Matthew's gospel and we know Jesus is about to be betrayed. We know he's about to go to Calvary's cross. And in verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And we know what happens next. Jesus prays with this fervency and this intensity to the point where his sweat was dripping like drips of drops of blood. And he was pleading for the Father, if it, if it be your will, would you, would you have this cup be passed and taken from me? And he's spending time agonizing over the fact that he's about to go to the cross. He's about to drink the cup of the wrath of his Father. But he does this in solitude. He goes up with his disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. And he says, you guys stay here. I need to go and spend alone time with my father. And when you spend time with God, you have to pray. And your prayer should not just be situational. Your prayer should not just be circumstantial. Your prayer should be intimate. We need to get to a place where we can be honest before God and Say, Lord, I'm afraid of this. Lord, I'm struggling with this. 
You see, so many of us fail solitude. We flee from solitude because we don't want to acknowledge what's really going on in our hearts. Right? There's those people who, who despise themselves. They're not comfortable with, them, with themselves. So they flock to social media. They flock to groups and fellowships and activities and events, or they just dive into their family, or they just dive into their work. But what God wants for you and I is to be able to spend intimate time with him and to pray not just topics and circumstances, to pray our hearts to him and to lay our burdens at his feet. Those are the three things we need to do when it comes to practicing solitude. Be intentional, meditate, and pray. Now, there's so many benefits to solitude, but I just want to focus on the benefit that solitude has now with community because this is the, the community series, right? And I want to tie it in here. And once again, Donald Whitney, he writes this. He says, think of silence and solitude as complementary disciplines to fellowship. Without silence and solitude, we're shallow. You see that? We're just event-based Christians. We're just part of the crowd, right? Bowling on Sunday, worship on Sunday, small group on Tuesday. That's my Christian life. If that's all it is, friends, we're shallow. But without fellowship, we're stagnant, okay? Without fellowship, we're stagnant. The Bible tells us that as iron sharpens iron, we're do so with one another, right? So we need community. We need one another. Balance requires them all. You see, solitude is the place where God plants his seeds of grace and truth in our hearts, okay? Solitude is the place where you and I can experience personal transformation, personal intimacy and renewal with God. But community is the place where those seeds that God plants, they bear fruit and they grow. You see, did you think about that? God wants to bear the fruit of the spirit in your life. You know, fruit such as self-control, patience, kindness, right? Forgiveness, those things. You don't just do that to yourself. You need a community to bear fruit. You need people who offend you to then practice patience towards, right? You need people to tempt you and challenge you for you to then be like, oh, I need to be self-controlled. I wanna say something, I wanna do something, but I'm gonna control my tongue. I'm gonna control my anger. I'm gonna control my pride. You see, community is the place where you bear fruit, but solitude is the place where God just deeply plants his seeds of grace and life into your soul. This is how the two work together. So if that's true, what happens? What happens if none of us are spending quality, intimate time with God? We will never see the fruit of the Spirit being born in our community. All of it will just be superficial, right? Unless you and I are spending solitude with God and we're allowing God to, to renew our minds, to challenge us, to transform us, to renew us and bless us, we will never experience and become this healthy, beautiful community crafted by God. A healthy community is always made up of healthy members. Not programs, not processes, not projects. Right? A healthy and beautiful church will be made up of healthy members who know how to spend time and go deep with God. If we understand this, then it's clear to see the benefits that come to our community. When we practice solitude with God, We'll see holiness in our church, right? Without intimacy, 
You don't see holiness. You know what you see? Legalism. Everyone's wearing a mask. Everyone is acting and saying and doing the right things. But when there's genuine communion with God, we're going to see genuine holiness. We're going to see obedience, right? Just as Jesus in solitude said, not my will, but yours. The more time we spend in solitude with God and we hear God speaking to us and the spirit is filling our hearts and working in us, we're going to say the same prayer, not my will, but yours. And suddenly we're going to become an obedient church obedient to God. That's going to be natural to us. It's going to be uh, part of our community, not, not just something we do because the pastor tells us to do. It's not going to be something we do because now we have a title, we're a deacon, we're a team leader, we're a small group leader, not out of obligation, but spirit-filled obedience. That's only going to happen when we spend solitude with God. We're going to see zeal with worship. We're going to see prayer for the church. We're going to become a church that is truly shaped by the word. Our corporate worship and pursuit of God. I'm going to say this. As I love corporate worship. I love Sundays. It is, it is the most, for me especially, it's the, most, it's the most important day of the week. I love worshiping with you guys. But I have to say this. Corporate worship cannot replace your personal moments with God. As awesome as Sunday might be for an hour and 15 minutes, that cannot be a substitute to your personal communion with God. So I want to offer a couple practical things. Okay? If you're struggling for solitude, um, start with this. Start with moments. Start with moments of solitude. Maybe it's just a drive and say, God, um, I'm going to turn off the radio. And while I'm driving, I want to think about you. Would you examine me? Would you show me more of who I am? Uh, would you show me how I, I maybe can be a better husband, father, friend? Would you show me where maybe I'm wandering and, and being distant? Okay, it's just moments. Maybe it's just a minute, right? You time it in. We had, uh, in college, I had friends where uh, we wanted to be more prayerful and mindful about our spiritual disciplines. So we would just set alarms, right? We just set an alarm and it would go off at like 5 p.m. And we're like, okay, oh, we got to stop and like spend time with God. And we weren't trying to be legalistic. We just knew that we needed accountability, right? It begins with moments, it could be five minutes. It could be 15, right? 15 minutes of stillness before God. Or do you have to like shock yourself, right? Try it. Try it. Okay. Um, Donald Whitney was talking about uh, this uh, father who had a big old family, loved his kids. He had a stressful job. So every day on his way back to home, he knew that like he had to now be a good husband and it was time for him to, to minister to his family. So he would stop by a nearby park just for a couple minutes in silence and solitude to recenter himself, to pray, and to ask God for the strength to love his wife, to father his children. And it was just a moment. It wasn't like an hour. It wasn't like three hours of like crazy, like Shekinah glory worship. It was just a moment of solitude with God. But that made such a difference in his life and in his marriage and his family. Spouses, right? You can help each other, right? By creating space for the other person to experience solitude. So if you schedule it in, and honestly, guys, like once you get married, you have to schedule everything in, right? I've got a shared Google calendar, and if I don't schedule it in, my wife is not happy, right? And I'm sure when you have 
kids, it's, it's even crazier, right? I know our staff members, they have like executive family meetings once a week just to plan out the week and their schedules and all of that in. You know what you guys can do? You can schedule in solitude. You can say, honey, tonight, I'll take the kids. Don't worry about them. If you want to just take 30 minutes alone, an hour, a couple hours alone, I want you to have sacred time with God, right? Uh, there's an old story of this Puritan mother. She didn't have that luxury, right? She didn't have that luxury to like get away from the kids. So you know what she would do? She would take her smock and cover it over her head and have her Bible on the kitchen table. But all the kids knew that when mommy had the smock over her head at the kitchen table, do not bother mommy because mommy's talking to God, right? That was her God time. And uh, it was very intentional, but the kids learned something. You see, when your children see you spending solitude and devotional time with God, they, get, they pick up on that. They pick up on that. And if they never see you do a quiet time, if they never see you pray, except for, for dinner prayers, they pick up on that as well. Right? Parents, you have a great opportunity to practice and model solitude and devotion to God uh, as spouses and as parents. I want to encourage you guys to support each other. Um, lastly, I just want to say this. We will all experience moments of loneliness. Okay. Loneliness at work, loneliness on campus, loneliness at home. Okay. It'll lead us to despair. We might despise our circumstances. We might be frustrated. That might lead us into a quarter life or a midlife crisis, whatever it might be. I'm going to say this. Every moment of loneliness can be redeemed into a moment of sacred solitude. And I just want to encourage you guys to think like that. You could feel lonely on a Friday or a Saturday night, and you could fill your heart with a Netflix binge or YouTube videos or shopping at the Americana, or you can sense that loneliness and say, Lord, I want to redeem this into a moment of solitude. Instead of leaving me empty and wanting, Lord, would you fill me and make me satisfied? Would that be our practice and our pattern? And as we do so with the Lord individually, God will make us and craft us into his community for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we need you so much because our lives are so busy. Our lives are so polluted with noise and social media and entertainment and news. There are so many demands and responsibilities that we all bear. But Father, we know, God, that, that these things do not have to overwhelm us, that these things do not have to rule over us, that God, you offer yourself and your resources, your spirit, your life, your presence so that we can always find rest in you, so that we can always find strength and renewal in you. So Lord, I just wanna pray for myself and for our congregation here that we would stop taking the, the medicine. We would stop taking the prescriptions of this world and that we would start considering what our lives, what our families, the state of our hearts and our souls and our happiness if we place all of that in you. And I pray, God, for anyone who's 
going to just start out on that journey. Somebody who's going to just start trying to read the Bible and trying to pray on their own. Lord, would you have mercy upon them? Would you meet them? Would you show them favor? Would you fill them and would you satisfy them as they do so? I believe, Lord, that is your will and that's your desire. And so God, as we seek you, Lord, I pray that you would satisfy us. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name.